never a stranger. Do you believe in angels? I'll understand if you answer no. I didn't believe in them either. That is, until this morning. I want to tell you a story, and if my story helps you believe in angels, well, then that's good. And if you don't, that's okay, too. It's up to you what you believe. I've spent the last 50 years not believing, all the while living with a woman who believes in angels with every ounce of her precious heart. That woman is my wife, Margaret Joyce Collins. I call her Maggie. I cannot, with this meager keyboard, express to you how much I loved her. If you've loved someone like that, then you know what I mean. And I need not worry about finding the right words. If you haven't, well, then you wouldn't appreciate the words anyway. I married Maggie in 1963 on Christmas Day. It wasn't planned that way. We were going to get married on November the 23rd. But after that idiot Oswald assassinated President Kennedy, Maggie was so overcome with sadness that we postponed the ceremony. Oh, Maggie loved Jack Kennedy, his wife, and Camelot. That's who my wife is. She loves romance, fairy tale endings, and angels. And that is why she ended up planning a Christmas Day wedding. Boy, did that upset her family and mine. Who gets married on Christmas Day? My older and often wiser sister warned Maggie that the turnout would likely be small. People want to be with their families on Christmas. They'll not want to be at a wedding. I remember Maggie smiling politely at her future sister-in-law and telling her, Only three people have to be there. Your brother, the preacher, and me. Anyone else who comes will just be icing on the cake. Well, it turned out my sister was right. Less than a dozen people showed up to the church that day. But it didn't bother Maggie at all. In 50 years, she never once mentioned a paltry turnout. In fact, whenever she spoke about our wedding day, she only talked about the angel. One of the few guests who came to the ceremony was Maggie's best friend from high school, Virginia. Virginia something or other. Virginia walked into, the, into that church uh, holding her in her hands. Uh, it was a small gift wrapped in a silvery paper with a silvery bow. When it came time to open the presents, Virginia's small box was the first one Maggie grabbed for. Inside the box was a ceramic angel. It stood about four inches high. Each tiny detail of the angel had been painstakingly hand-painted by the artist. He brushed the tips of the small sculpted wings with gold, and the tiny lips of the cherubim wore scarlet. In her hands, she carried a basket filled with small flowers, each one with incredible detail and color. Now, I'm not one much for knickknacks and such, but even I appreciated the beauty of that tiny statue. 
Every year thereafter, on Christmas Eve, my wife adds one more angel to her collection. But that small ceramic angel from Christmas of 1963 always stands front and center. Yesterday was December 24th, and just like the 49 previous Christmas Eves, Maggie woke up early, also making sure that I rode out of the bed, and prepared to go into the city. It was an all-too-familiar routine. We would drive to town, have a small breakfast at her favorite diner, and then begin the annual quest for her angel. We'd walk through old downtown where a dozen little shops trimmed in Christmas decor and displayed their goods behind decorated windows. You know, I don't think Maggie ever bought a single angel at any of those shops. But she enjoyed browsing every aisle and every store. I've learned over the many years to follow just a few steps behind her, nodding affirmation when she saw something she admired, and to never complain about the snail's pace of a woman shopping. Besides, there was a perk for me that I should not omit. This time of year, most of the shops offered free coffee or hot apple cider to the husbands in tow. After a few hours of walking around and too many cups of cider filling my old bladder, we would drive out to the mega shopping mall where Maggie would be certain to discover the perfect angel to add to her collection. This year's angel would be number 50. With great anticipation and excitement, Maggie had informed me, this one will be special. I didn't point out to her that every year she proclaims, this one will be special. You learn some things after being married for almost half a century, like what to say and, well, more importantly, what not to say. December snow fell as I pulled the car onto the interstate. The Mega Mall is about 20 miles north of downtown, and under good driving conditions, it would only take a brief car ride to get there. But with each mile the Lincoln traveled, the heavier the snow became. Maggie seemed oblivious to the sudden winter storm, chattering away about all the Christmas gifts she had already bought for the grandchildren, checking them off her list one by one, making sure she had left no one out. This was her time of year. Maggie loves everything about the holidays. When she talks about her grandchildren, my lovely wife's green eyes would shine brighter than any Christmas ornament. Tomorrow morning, all the grandchildren will arrive on our doorstep bright and early. It will transform our home into Grandma's house, and Maggie loves every moment. The Lincoln MKT handled the slippery roads. It wasn't a heavy beast like the old Continentals I'd driven in the past, so I had slowed down considerably. No reason to take any chances. Now, it wasn't my driving ability that worried me. I've been driving longer than you've been alive. It was the other nitwits on the road. It's been a slow year for snowfall, so the roads had started out clear. The day had also started out unseasonably warm, causing most of the snow to melt as it landed on the asphalt. 
my concern, which helped tune out Maggie's yakking about grandkids and drown out the Christmas music on the car radio, was for the drive home that would come later, later after the sun goes down, leaving nothing to warm the roads. Snow-covered roads are bad news. Ice-covered roads, well, they're deadly. I came close to suggesting to Maggie that we turn around and head home. I knew it would disappoint her, and I don't think she would have argued. But I didn't. Now I wish I had. By the time we arrived at the mall, only a few flakes danced around our heads. But dark, heavy clouds promised more snow. The mall's parking lot was filled with cars belonging to last-minute shoppers. I drove around for ten minutes before finding a space that wasn't a quarter of a mile away from the mall. The warm morning temperatures were now a part of the past, and the bitter cold greeted us as we climbed out of the car. I, you know, I, I spied that old lady before we had walked ten steps. She was shuffling along right towards us. She had all the markings of well, what we used to call a bag lady. I guess homeless is what we're supposed to call them now. Anyhow, she wore an oversized, worn-out coat, so faded and dirty that it was hard to know what color it had once been. Around her neck, she wore a long, green-knitted scarf, littered with holes. Rubber boots, also oversized, protected her feet from the winter's chill. Her wiry gray hair stuck out in all directions from beneath a Green Bay Packers knit cap era 1970s. Her face was worn with age and too much exposure to the harsh climate of Wisconsin. Yet beneath it all, she had a smile on her face, revealing teeth almost too perfect for a woman in her condition. Oh, good Lord, I said. Just ignore her and maybe she'll go away. Never a stranger, Maggie replied. Now I've heard my wife say those very words hundreds, maybe thousands of times. She usually follows them by quoting from the Bible, from the book of Hebrews, something about entertaining angels. Maggie knows her Bible better than, than most, and well, a lot better than I do. She can quote scripture for just about anything that could happen to a person. But this time she didn't. Instead, she said, She's a Packer fan. You ought to like that. Now she probably stole the hat, I mumbled. Maggie elbowed me in the ribs. Hush, it's Christmas. I rubbed the spot where the elbow had landed. Does the Bible say anything about elbowing your husband of 50 years in the ribs? Not a thing about it or against it she answered with a smile, and it won't be fifty years until tomorrow. You haven't forgotten our anniversary, have you? The gap between us and the old lady had closed to just a few feet. All three of us stopped walking at the same time. Merry Christmas, the old lady chimed with a hint of a Norwegian accent. Maggie smiled, and Merry Christmas to you. 
The old woman takes a step closer. Here it comes. I knew it wouldn't take long. The haggard stranger shifts her weight, extending a gloved hand. Do you think you could? Maggie interrupts the homeless woman before she can finish her appeal. Where did you get that? Maggie was pointing at a golden brooch pinned to the old ragged scarf. The piece of jewelry seemed out of place in the unkemptness that embodied this strange woman. The brooch was shaped like an angel on bended knees, hands folded, and head bowed in prayer. The jeweler had crafted a small halo out of diamonds. It was beautiful. The old woman lifts her scarf holding the angel brooch, thin material pinched between her finger and thumb. She stares at the angel for more than a moment before answering. It's mine, she says with exaggerated indignation. A, a friend gave it to me. I wondered if the friend knew she gave it to her. I didn't allow this thought to materialize into sound. My ribs wouldn't handle another jab from Maggie's elbow. What a delightful gift. It's lovely. Maggie smiles and then continued, turning her attention to me. Joe, give her the tin. The tin is a saw book that Maggie periodically slips in my wallet behind the picture of our newest grandchild. She's been doing that for more years than I can remember. Her motive is for occasions just like this one. Maggie has always believed that he can help if you he can help someone. With the abundance the Lord provides, well, then you should. There was a time when $10 was more money than we had in the bank. But over the last 15 years, the Lord has provided abundantly. Just in time, too. It had allowed me to retire at a reasonable age and for the two of us to enjoy our last years together. So the $10 bill was there for others. Not strangers, mind you. Never a stranger. I look at the woman who had unexpectedly entered our quiet circle. She didn't look too homeless to me, other than the worn-out clothes she wore. Maggie noticed my hesitation, and her elbow responded with another trip to my ribs. Not barely a tap this time. I reached for my wallet and removed the $10 bill. The woman took it from my hand and, with the skill of a magician, made it disappear inside her too-big coat. Merry Christmas, and God bless you, she sings. Both of you, she added the last after glancing my way for just a moment. You should get inside before the storms come. It's a Christmas storm. Those are always scary. I wasn't sure about her forecasting ability, but it was getting colder, and with each passing minute, and, and it would be dark before long. Maggie doesn't like me driving when it's dark outside. I hoped the change in weather and the imminent nightfall would mean a shortened shopping venture. Maggie replied, And Merry Christmas to you, and God's blessings as well. She reaches out and touches the angel brooch. It's so beautiful. The old lady smiles and turns away, walking back to her staging ground, waiting for the next good Samaritan to cross her path. My wife stood for just a moment more, watching the old woman walk away. Maggie's always worn her heart on her sleeve. 
I can see your compassion for this woman draping her, which, my friend, is why I loved her for more than a lifetime. The shopping mall was still bustling with last-minute shoppers, hurrying from store to store, seeking that perfect present. The mall has more than a hundred stores where one can spend too much money. But as tradition, Maggie would only really shop for her angel in the Hallmark store or the Christmas shop. The latter stays open all year round. I can never understand that myself. But it was Maggie's favorite place to go, regardless of what month was showing on the kitchen wall calendar. On the way to the Hallmark store, Maggie steered us into a couple of shops for a brief visit. She stayed long enough to glance into the jewelry showcases. I don't believe she knew I noticed her looking at jewelry. That old woman's angel brooch must have given birth to an uncommon desire inside Maggie. She was never one to ooh and ah over jewelry. Now she had some earrings and bracelets and of course her wedding rings. But I'm certain she has never worn a brooch. I think if she had happened upon an angel brooch that day, it would have been coming home with us. But the only package she carried back to our car held a gold and topaz colored angel made from cut glass. The shape of the angel was almost identical to the brooch the old woman had worn, except this one well, it didn't have a halo. Maggie had spotted it almost at once after entering the Christmas shop, and for the second time that day she surprised me with her behavior. Most years, she would mull over half a dozen angels before finally making her purchase. This time, it was quick and decisive. I'm not complaining, mind you. In fact, I was rather pleased the shopping trip would end sooner than later. Now, as I look back on it, well, damn, I wish we'd stayed at the mall longer. I wish we were still there. Then, well, she would still be with me. Maggie found a radio station that was playing the non-stop Christmas music. She turned up the volume when Nat King Cole came on singing the Christmas song. The weather had taken a turn for the worse, and the snow was falling at an alarming rate. By the time I took our exit, I turned the wipers on full speed to keep the windshield clear. Traffic was much lighter now, so I don't mind slowing my speed without worrying about being hit from behind or some goofball honking and cussing at an old man driving too slowly. Nat finished his song, replaced by Dean Martin crooning, Let it snow, let it snow. Maggie had removed the new angel from the bag and was trying to admire it in the nearly dark car. She reached up and turned on the passenger side courtesy light. Then she said something about there being a, a small crack in the base. She hadn't noticed it at the store. Well, maybe it's not a crack, sweetie. It's awfully dark in the car, I offer. No, I think it's cracked. Look at it. Now, the next part of this story, well, it's hard to tell you. When I think back on it, I remember everything in slow motion, like, like watching an old movie. But it wasn't slow motion. In fact, it it went so damn fast, I still have a hard time believing it happened. If I had to tell you what happened, instead of putting words down on a piece of paper, 
I don't think I'd be able to without well, without crying like a little baby. No, I think it's cracked. Look at it. I turn my eyes from the road in front of me just long enough to see the little angel resting in Maggie's hands. I couldn't look long. The headlights from the 18-wheeler shining through the passenger side window were too bright to see anything else. My mind told me they were also too close, but I couldn't do anything. The rig was traveling 50 miles an hour, if not faster. He's going too fast. I think I might have said that out loud. I don't know. I wanted to reach out and grab those lights, push them away before they hit us. And then I felt the impact as the rig slammed into the side of the Lincoln. Maggie sighed. It was the loudest sound I'd ever heard. Metal on metal, glass shattering. Dean Martin's voice suddenly stops and is replaced by my wife screaming. The rig pushes the Lincoln across the road like it was a cardboard box. The second impact comes when the driver's side, my side, slams into a city bus parked along the curb. The pain in my shoulder is immediate and severe. I turn towards Maggie, but the pain intensifies as it shoots through my shoulder and up into my neck. I manage to turn at the waist towards the passenger seat. Before I passed out, I saw the topaz and golden glass of her newest angel, her 50th angel, lying on the seat between us. It wasn't even broken. I don't think there's a crack in it, sweetie. I look at Maggie. I broke her. When I opened my eyes, the light was blinding. I couldn't understand how the headlights of the rig could still shine so brightly. I know I'd heard the crash. It was loud. As my head cleared, I, I realized... The lights were coming from overhead and not from the truck. I wasn't in my car. I was lying on a hospital bed. The pain in my left shoulder throbbed dully. Standing beside the bed with her back to me was a woman wearing nurse's scrubs. <clears throat> Excuse me. My voice can only manage a whisper. The nurse turns around and smiles. Well, you're finally awake. How do you feel? Where's my wife? The nurse's smile falters slightly as she shifts her weight from one foot to the other. Your wife is in the ICU. She got a surgery um, about an hour ago. The doctor will come down to speak with you soon. We were waiting for you to wake up. I want to go see her, please. The doctor will come down and see you shortly. I think you should probably wait here. You took a rather good knock yourself. I want to go see her now. I start to get out of the hospital bed, but I'm overcome with dizziness. I hadn't moved far enough to fall, but the nurse grabs my arm nonetheless. Sir, I know you're concerned about your wife, but if you fall down, you may not be in any condition to see her. I promise you the doctor will be down to speak with you soon. I looked at the we care person, knowing I would surely lose this battle. I also knew what her answer would be if I asked her about Maggie, but I did it anyway. 
How's my wife doing? You'll have to wait for the doctors. I told you. I lay back down and closed my eyes. The image of the big rig barreling down the side road was as clear as a mountain stream. Everything after that is murky. I remember there being two impacts, just moments apart. I wouldn't remember hitting the bus until later. I look at my left shoulder and discover they have wrapped it in an ace bandage. I figured it must have, must not have broken anything since it was just that soft wrap. I found out later I only had a slight dislocation. God only knows how I walked away. Well, I guess I didn't really walk away from the accident, barely bruised while my wife lay in the intensive care unit. This thought brought up an image of Maggie's little angel lying on the seat unbroken. For a moment, I wondered where that angel was. Maggie would want it. I opened my eyes to flee from the ghostly images of the accident, but only for a second. My eyelids were heavy, and I suddenly wanted to sleep more than anything. I don't know how long I dozed off for before the voice of the doctor told me, calling my name uh, brought me back to awareness. Mr. Collins. Mr. Collins. I knew right away the news would not be good. Is my wife okay? I hoped. Sir, your wife was injured badly in the accident. She broke many bones, including four of her ribs. The ribs punctured her right lung and damaged other major organs. Ironically, it was the impact of the airbag that caused the damage to her ribs. However, her head injuries are critical. But because of her current condition, uh, we could not determine the extent of injury. During surgery, I was able to stop much of the internal bleeding, but not all of it. Her heart, her heart stopped twice during surgery. I elected to close her up before we could finish. Is my wife dead? No, sir. Not yet. It's highly unlikely she'll survive through the night. We have her sedated and resting comfortably in the ICU. Can I see her? I think you should, Mr. Collins. The nurse can get a wheelchair for you if you think you might not be able to walk upstairs. I sat up in the bed to test the dizziness. It was still there, but, but not as bad. I looked at the nurse and nodded that I would use the wheelchair. After she left to get the chair, I thanked the doctor for take, taking the time to just speak to me. It was his turn to nod and offer a friendly smile. I'm sorry the news wasn't better. With that, the doctor turned and left a little area formed by long white curtains. After a few minutes, the nurse came back with the chair. She helped me into it with care that only comes from years of experience. And she looked like she was barely old enough to drive. We rode down the long hallway until we arrived at a bank of elevators. My guide presses the up button. We wait silently. I wondered if the doors would ever open when I finally heard the bell announcing the arrival of the elevator's car. The car was empty. It was as, it was as if the privacy of the elevator prompted the nurse to 
end the reign of silence that had prevailed over the past few minutes. I'm sorry the news about your wife isn't better. Thank you. So am I. I really didn't want to talk, especially to someone I had only had a brief acquaintance with. Yet I wanted to be polite. I needed to be polite. Never a stranger. This is an awful time for something like this to happen. With tomorrow being Christmas and all, she sounded sincere in her assessment of there being a time worse than another to learn that your wife is dying. I resisted replying with sarcasm. Be polite. Never a stranger. I added to the conversation. Tomorrow's also our anniversary. Fifty years. Wow, fifty years. That's the silver anniversary. That's really awesome, she chirped. I didn't point out to this young nurse that it was the gold, not silver anniversary. It wouldn't have made a difference. She is still young, too young to comprehend 50 years of anything. It is awesome. Thank you again. The bell in the elevator chimes again, announcing our arrival to the floor which houses the intensive care unit, which holds my wife, the woman whom I married 50 years ago. The hallway is brightly lit, but without all the merriment that comes with Christmas decorations, as on the previous floor. Across from the nurse's station, one lone artificial Christmas tree, decorated with a little bit of garland and red and green glass balls. There wasn't even a tree topper, not a star, not an angel, nothing. My guide had wheeled me down the hallway and now stopped in front of the nurse's station. She exchanges whispers with the woman behind the counter, another nurse, but, but older. She points to a room just a few feet away, across the hallway. The sign to the left of the door reads, I see you three. Written below that in neat handwriting, M. Collins. I stood up, getting out of the chair no dizziness. The young nurse asked if I was okay to walk the rest of the way. I didn't answer her. I just walked towards Maggie's room. The door to the room was open. I could see my wife lying in the bed. There were monitors on both sides of the bed with red and green flashing numbers that mean nothing to me. A third monitor on the right side of the bed was an electrocardiogram. I recognized the green EKG waves traveling across the front display. To me, the pattern seemed slow, too slow. Only one window in the room. The heavy white curtain was partially opened. It was dark black outside, but I could see snow falling lazily past the window. On the wall above her bed was a digital clock. The brilliant orange numbers told me that the time was 11.49 p.m. I walk over and stand next to her bed, looking down at my wife. She looks frail. The bed seems to swallow her up. Her right hand rests on her chest, as if she were saying the pledge. They had secured her left to her side, IV needles, 
protruding from the back of her small hand. Her face, her beautiful face, was pale, no color. It's okay to hold her hand if you would like, and you should talk to her. The young nurse, I learned later her name was Jennifer, had followed me into the room. I turned to look at her, silhouetted in the hallway light. She, she looks like an angel. In that moment, the reality of what was happening to my wife blows over me with incredible power. I felt like I was going to fall. Jennifer was at my side right away, her, her slight frame somehow supporting me. The feeling passes after a minute. I thank her and, and turn again to my wife. I hold her hand and I say a quiet prayer, asking God to protect her and to comfort her. I open my eyes and look at the clock on the wall. 11.53 p.m. Maggie's eyes were open. She was looking at me. Talk to her, Jennifer urges. Rarely in my life have I ever been at a loss for words, but I didn't know what to say to my wife. 11.54 p.m. I try to open my mouth to, to make any kind of sound. It didn't even have to be a word. I just wanted to hear myself, and I wanted her to hear me. More than anything, I wanted her to hear me. Her eyes were still open, but I don't think she saw me or understood what she was saying. The brightness that had always shined in Maggie's eyes was gone. 11.55 p.m. I should tell her how much I love her. My mouth formed the words, I, but again, no sound comes. I can hear a clicking sound. I didn't know what it was. I look at the heart monitor and see the wavy lines slowly straightening, straightening into flat lines. On the bottom left, a small readout marked BPM was reading 47. I look again at my wife's face. Her eyes are still open. The BPM number changes to 32. I look at the clock on the wall. 11.57 p.m. When I look back at the monitor, the red number is flashing and reads 24. My dear God, don't take no, don't take her now. The number 24 fades. No number comes. There's an alarm. It sounds somewhere far off, but it wasn't far off. It was right there beside me. The alarm that sounds when a heart stops. In a panic, I turn around to find the nurse. She wasn't there. I turn back and I see three people surrounding the hospital bed. Jennifer, the nurse from the, sta from the station, and the doctor. I didn't understand. When did they come in? The doctor announces time of death, 11.58 p.m. He glances at me for a moment before turning to leave. Jennifer's standing by my side and saying something to me, but I, I couldn't understand her. I look at Maggie. Her eyes closed. My wife, my wife was dead. 
I was overcome with the need to leave the hospital. I needed to be outside. I wanted to feel the cold winter night air on my face. I walked as fast as these 73-year-old legs would carry me, first to the elevator, then down the main hallway. But I couldn't find a damn exit. I turned to the left and then to the right, walking aimlessly. The image of that clock proclaiming 11.58 p.m. burning into my mind. At last, I see the main entry to the hospital. Through the glass doors, I can see snow falling from the night sky. I walk through the automatic doors and cold air slams into my face. It felt good. It's what I needed. I wanted to go numb. I stood just outside the awning, looking up into the heavens, letting the snow fall on my face. I felt like a little child trying to catch a snowflake on his tongue. My tears felt warm rolling down my cold cheeks. Maggie's gone. After almost 40 years, she's gone. A couple more minutes. We couldn't have had just two more minutes. I felt her I felt her before I saw her standing there. The sodium vapor lamp cast its lights down on a woman wearing an oversized coat and a green bay knit cap. The scarf and the dark shadows created by the lamp hides her face. It was the homeless woman from the shopping mall. She raises a gloved hand and waves at me, as if we're old friends. Why was she here? She starts towards me. I can hear Maggie whisper in my ear, Joe, give her the tin. The old woman removes the scarf from in front of her face, revealing cheeks that were too red. Hello again. The chilly night turns her breath into fog, hanging in the air for a moment before disappearing. I look at the woman, not saying anything. Joe, how is your wife? I remain silent, looking at her. Was her question a generic, how's your family question? Or did she ask just because we were standing in front of the hospital? There's no way she knew about the accident. No way she could have known that Maggie was in this hospital. Joe. Joe. She died. Oh, Joe, I'm so sorry. And on Christmas Day, so sad. She sounded sincere. Almost like an old friend. Not like a stranger who I barely knew. Never a stranger, Joe. Never a stranger. I looked around, searching for the owner of the voice whispering in my ear, looking for Maggie. There's no signs of her. Of course not. She's dead. It wasn't on Christmas Day. She died before midnight. I respond as if arguing a point in a friendly conversation. Why was I even speaking with this woman? Never a stranger, Joe. Is Maggie speaking to you, Joe? Is she speaking to you now? The old woman smiles. 
How did she know my wife's name? No, I answer, looking down at the snow-covered ground. The old woman, wearing an old faded coat too big for her frame, in a Green Bay Packer knit cap that had seen better days, reaches out, taking my hand in hers. Joseph, God loves you. He loves Maggie, too. And it's Christmas morning. All these things all put together can lead to wonderful happenings. You should go be with your wife. My wife is dead. I know, you told me. Go to your wife, Joe. It's too cold to be out here. Go to your wife. The old woman turns and walks away. I stood there watching her, wondering where she would go on this snowy night. I looked down at my hand, the one she had been holding. Resting in the palm was the gold angel brooch. I turned and went inside. I follow the carefully placed signs back to the ICU. Without them, I may still be wandering the halls of that stupid hospital. The old woman's words echo in my mind over and over. Those things combined can lead to wonderful happenings. What did she mean? Was it wrong for me to think a Christmas miracle could happen? Maggie was my life. I can't find the words to tell you how much I love her. She'd been gone for less than an hour, and the hole in my life already seemed too much, too big. I stop a few feet away from the door to room ICU 3. Her name, M. Collins, is still on the placard. I can see inside the room from where I stand, but... From this angle, I can only see the foot of the bed. I wonder if they had removed my wife's body yet. The hallway is silent. Somewhere further down the corridor, coming from another room, I can hear the steady beeping of a monitor. That sound means the patient's still alive. When it stops beeping, large holes open up in your life. There was no one at the nurse's station. I peek over the counter to see if someone may be sitting, but both chairs are empty. I turn back towards room ICU 3. I take a deep breath, like I'm getting ready to jump into a lake instead of walking into the room where I'd last seen Maggie alive. I slowly cross the hallway. She was there. I could see her lying in the bed. They had covered her with a thin sheet from her toes to her chin. I look for any signs of life. I hope to see any signs of life. I walk over and stand next to her bed, looking down at my wife. She looks frail. The bed seems to swallow her up. Her right hand has, is resting on her chest as if she were saying the pledge. They secured her left hand to her side, IV needles protruding from the back of her small hand. Her face, her beautiful face was pale and without color. It's okay to hold her hand if you would like. You should talk to her. 
the young nurse, Jennifer, had come into the room. I hadn't heard her. The light from the hallway cast a silhouette around her. I don't understand what's happening. I turned back to the bed and looked down at her lifeless body. I feel dizzy. I thought I might fall, so I closed my eyes tight and wait for the impact of the hard floor. Jennifer's hands on my shoulder. The dizzy spell subsides as quickly as it had come. I open my eyes and look at the clock on the wall. 11.57 p.m. That can't be right. Midnight's already come and gone. Two bright orange dots flash between the 11 and the 5.7. Each flash indicating another second has passed. Pass forward, not backwards. I don't understand. Talk to her, Joe. The nurse urges me on. I look down at Maggie. Her eyes are open. 11.58 p.m. Joe. Barely a whisper. Again, I feel as if I'll fall. Maggie. Maggie's alive. Maggie said my name. Like she has so many times over the last 50 years. She said my name. Joe, talk to her. The urgency in the nurse's voice has increased. I wanted to take her hand, but I, I couldn't. Maggie. Maggie, I love you. She smiles. Just a small one. But it was a smile. I love you too, Joe. The tears rolled down my face. I reach up to wipe them away, my, my hands shaking like a, a willow tree in a windstorm. What's wrong, Joe? Maggie asked. Why, why are you crying? I don't, I don't know. Joe, what time is it? I look up at the clock. 12.01 a.m. It's a minute past midnight, I tell her. The smile on her face grows and brightens. Happy anniversary, Joe Collins. Merry Christmas. I tell her again how much I love her when the alarm on the EKG interrupts my words. The BPM number reads 32. I turn around and the doctor's there with two, the, with two nurses. I, they're standing at the end of the bed. I turn back around and, and, and the BPM flashes 24. Dear God, don't take her again. No, don't take her again. The line on the heart monitor is flat. The doctor's talking. Time of death, 12.02 a.m. He looks at me for a moment and turns to leave the room. Jennifer comes over and places her hand on my shoulder. She made it to 50 years, Mr. Collins. She loved you so much. She hung on for you. For just a moment, I thought God had given me my wife back. But he didn't. Instead, he called her home. What God gave me was four minutes. Four minutes more with the woman I've loved for my entire life. Four minutes that turned one day into the next. God gave me a Christmas miracle. I never saw that old woman again, but I believe one day I will. You see, 
I believe she was Maggie's angel. She's holding Maggie's hand when she crossed over to God's house. I believe when the good Lord calls me home, I'll see that old woman again. I need to give her that little goat angel back. I asked you early on, do you believe in angels? I think maybe now you understand why I do. From Hebrews 13, do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so some people have entertained angels without knowing it. The End